Good morning. I trust you are all doing well and didn't slide too badly down Devere Drive. Um, yeah. So for those who don't know, my name is Justin Sitzma. I'm uh, one, of the, one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it's my privilege uh, to kick off uh, kind of a short-ish four-week series. I mean, I suppose compared to like our Genesis series, which was like 13, 14 weeks or whatever it was. Um, four-week series exploring some ver- various leaders in the Bible. Um, in one way or another, the reason why we're doing this, in one way or another, we are all leaders, And we all follow other leaders. I think of the words of St. Paul as he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was a follower of Jesus, but he was a leader to so many other leaders. And if we are engaged in the work, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, if not, we, I just want to say that you are very welcome here. This is a great place to explore your, uh, your faith or the, the faith that you're here to check out. But um, if you are engaged in the work of being an apprentice of Jesus and helping others to be apprentices of Jesus, we all need to learn to lead well and to lead better. And as Allison mentioned, we are, uh, there's a practical concern of our upcoming elders elections. And this is a process that Alex and some of the others currently on session will be able to tell, uh, tell you a lot more about. I'm, uh, new to the church and new to the process. So I'm, I, I feign a little bit of ignorance, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. So this is an opportunity for us to be listening to God on how he would have us lead. Some of us, maybe even by going through this discernment process and hearing from God. And listening to God is a big piece of what we are going to be exploring this morning. Because I believe that good leaders, good leaders of all types and stripes, good leaders listen to God. Good leaders listen to God. To that end, why don't we just take a moment, put that into practice, and hear from God in prayer as we begin our teaching time together. Well, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts in this moment? Whatever baggage we are carrying in with us this morning, we lay it at your feet, not to forget about it or ignore it, but just because we want to listen and hear from you and we don't want to be distracted. But actually, Lord, we want to bring you into those things. We want to bring you into those broken places. So God, would we listen to you this morning? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we're going to be looking at a particular series of events in the life of the prophet Elijah this morning. The entire prophetic ministry, both then and now, is all about listening to God, hearing God's voice and speaking God's truth. And prophets, because of this, prophets were particularly unpopular in Israel. They often had to speak difficult truths to powerful people. 
Power often corrupted the monarchy in Israel and Judah. And the divided kingdom, that was kind of, so you had Israel and Judah right after the reign of King Solomon. The, the kingdom where the promised land was got divided into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. It was all that, it, they were all kind of the Jewish people who, the followers of Yahweh. And, uh, power, was a central theme that got corrupted throughout. If you read through First and Second Kings, it just happens over and over and over again. It's like, oh, this king was kind of good, but then he got a little too much of a big head, and then he decided to worship other gods. It just seems to be par for the course. It just happened over and over again. And when the kings and people were led astray by false gods or by evil practices, the prophets were the one who would work toward bringing them back, drawing them back to Yahweh, the Lord. And to draw them back to truth. And Elijah was no exception. In fact, Elijah stands out among the prophets so much that even though he doesn't stand in the lineage of Moses or Abraham, Isaac or Jacob, he is one of the most central figures in the Hebrew Bible. He reappears, if you read through the New Testament, he reappears on the mountain with Moses and when Jesus takes a few of his disciples up to this transfiguration moment, Elijah is there with them. People actually mistook Jesus for a kind of a, a, a reincarnated Elijah of some kind. Like Jesus was like, uh, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say you're like Elijah. And whether that meant like a, a new version of Elijah or a type of Elijah, we don't know. But um, and, and then there's this scene that happens at the cross where he, he cries out and he says, Eli, Eli, Laba Sabathani. And they think, oh, he's calling out to Elijah. So Elijah is this significant figure in the Hebrew Bible. And what made Elijah's ministry unique was that it happened during one of the lowest points in ancient Israel's history. They were being led by the gold standard of evil, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Both were apostates. Both worked exceptionally hard to lead people astray toward to worship the, the Canaanite gods, in particular the, the god Baal. And like Ahab, uh, and sorry, and kings like Ahab, they had their own set of prophets who would prophesy. So they would kind of surround themselves with a bunch of yes men and yes women who would be like, okay, I want you to prophesy good things about me. And they'd be like, oh, well, you are going to be very successful in your ministry and, and in your king, your kingdom is going to thrive and there's going to be no drought and there's going to be no problems. And that's what these prophets would do. The prophets of Baal in particular, they were that for King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The prophets of Baal, there was 450 of them, all leading the people of uh, Israel astray. And this all comes to a head because Elijah, as, the, as a prophet of the Lord, the one true creator God, he is incised by this. And so he, it, it, this all comes to this incredible story. It's this showdown. One of the most epic stories in the whole Bible that we are not going to read this morning. Because it's what after that I'm, whether it's what happens after that that I'm more concerned about. But I want to just give a little recap of it here. So the prophet Elijah on a, a mountain called Mount Carmel, he's against 450 prophets of Baal. There are two bulls that are about to get sacrificed, two altars, and there's no way to light these, these sacrifices on fire. 
This is kind of the rules that, that he set. So Elijah declared that this is the moment where people will truly know who the Lord is. That whichever bull is consumed in flames, that is, that, 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 whoever was praying to that, to God. So if you have one altar over here, one altar over here, these people are praying to Baal, these people are praying to the Lord. And if, if this lights on fire, that means the Lord is God. If this lights on fire, that means Baal is God. And so the prophets, of Baal, they start praying and prophesying for hours and hours and nothing happens. They dance around it. They, they cut themselves. They yell and they scream and nothing happens. And Elijah begins to taunt them. He says, shout louder. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping or must be awakened. <laughs> So, and this is, I just love this. Like whenever I read this story, I just, I get a little giddy because I just think it's like, so, I don't know. I, I just can't quite describe it. But so he instructs the onlookers, Hey, go get a bunch of buckets of water. I want you to pour a bunch of water over this altar. And so they do that, um, to kind of just reinforce that, Hey, this is, if this is going to happen, it's only going to be because of God. And then he prays this very simple prayer. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. So this incredible victory, this, this just monumental moment in time where these 450 prophets were rendered useless and God, the, the Lord God of the, of the universe was victorious. The onlookers are shocked and they even, many of them even repent. But as an act of purification, which I don't pretend to understand in the year 2020, this was many thousands of years ago, we struggle to understand this in our modern world, but um, instead of, you know, saying, okay, well, great, you repented, see you later, um, he had them all slaughtered. And I, again, I don't understand, I don't know all of the intricacies of that and how that all worked, but that is what happened. Um, and... Obviously, King Ahab, who is watching all this, he sees the pro- his prophets fail. He sees them get murdered. Do you think he's a little angry? Just like, just maybe a little. So he's watching all this and he's just, yeah, he's seething. He's furious. He runs off to tell Queen Jezebel. And Elijah's kind of basking in his victory. And this is where we pick up with our scripture today. Elijah, first uh, King chapter 19 starting at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. A.K.A. You're dead. (laughs) Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. 
Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some break, some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of hot water. Or is there a jar of water, not hot water? That'd be gross. <laughs> he ate and drank and then lay down, lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for this journey is too, lo- is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart. And shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, no, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Melilah, to succeed you as prophet. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on here, I recognize. There's a lot happening. And so what I'm really hoping to do is to kind of take these two sections, this first bit where he uh, runs away and, and has this moment under the broom bush, and then where he is at the mountain waiting to hear from the Lord. So for all of Elijah's leadership over Israel, all of his boldness against the prophets of Baal and King Ahab, this is not one of his finer moments. But as I'm sure many of us learn from our own mistakes, we have a beautiful opportunity to also learn from Elijah's mistakes. If I can just reiterate how intense of a victory this was that Elijah experienced on Mount Carmel, this might explain a little bit of what is going on after the fact here. So Ahab and Jezebel, they send a messenger to basically say to Elijah, "Um, by the end of the day tomorrow, you're going to be dead. We're going to hunt you down and we're going to kill you. And so he has a little freak out. He's afraid. And he does what most of us would do. He runs. But it's a little bit weird when you think about it. It's a little bit weird after all that we just saw. 
Where is the Elijah that was so confident that he was taunting the people, the prophets of Baal? That he was so confident that the Lord was going to act and light this altar on fire. The one who was jeering these prophets. And I can't help but think that in this moment, Elijah just had a bit of like a a crash after this incredible victory. Maybe some of you have had similar moments like this. I remember when I was 16, I, my first summer, I had my first summer working up at Muskoka Baptist Conference, now known as Muskoka Bible Center. It's a kind of a family camp near Huntsville. And I remember coming home after this really like emotionally charged two months. And, and I just had like this teenage breakdown. Um, and, and it was this experience where you have these new group of friends. You're together like in isolated place for two months. You get to know each other super well. You bond together. You share these spiritual experiences together. And then in this jarring moment, you're thrown back into the the throes of reality. And I remember for me, it was like I got home on Monday afternoon and had to go to school the next morning and I just was not having it. Some of you might have had a similar experience on a mission trip where you come home and it's like this reality check of like, oh my gosh, like what is life, you know? Um, or maybe you've had a weekend retreat where you have this mountaintop experience and Elijah literally had a mountaintop experience um, where you have this incredible, remarkable experience and then you go home and it's like, wow, it's, I almost feel like I'm in a bit of a funk now. You know, I, I, I actually experienced that a little bit after Christmas this year where we had this wonderful Christmas as a family and, and there was a few days uh, kind of in between Christmas and New Year's where I was just like, I'm kind of miserable. Like, I, I don't know, what the post-Christmas blues, I don't know if that's a real thing, but it was for me this year. However we might relate to Elijah's experience here, he, he does seem to have this kind of spiritual crash of kind. He's genuinely fearful of his life, and, and I think we can have a degree of empathy for him. I think that's natural that he would feel that way. So after running nearly a marathon, he lies under a bush and just declares to God, he says, I've had enough, Lord. I'm done. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So this is really intense. Like he is depressed here. He's burnt out. He's his emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical strength are absolutely, totally drained. And so all he has the strength to do in this moment is to ask to die. It's awful. I can only imagine what someone is feeling in that moment. I know that some of you across this very room have been in dark places like this. When you don't have the strength, you feel like you don't have the strength to go on. Where death seems like the only option. You're depleted and you don't even have the energy to ask for what you need, to advocate for yourself. But in God's grace, he sends an angel to look after Elijah. It's like, okay, you can't, you can't take care of yourself. I'm going to have someone just take care of you for you. So he falls asleep and he wakes up and there's this spiritual being, this angel baking hot, uh, baking bread over hot coals. And the angel gives him bread and water and he rests again. It's like this eat, sleep, uh, eat, sleep, repeat cycle. The angel wakes him up and encourages him to eat and drink again, to strengthen him for the journey that's ahead. But something interesting happens here. The angel doesn't tell him where to go. So he's kind of in this like no man's land and he's out in the wilderness and the angel's like, okay, well, the the journey ahead is too hard for you. It's going to be really, really difficult. 
but doesn't tell him where to go whatsoever. So left to his own devices, Elijah heads. Now, geographically, this is important. So Israel, again, is in the north, and he runs to the most southern point he can possibly go while still remaining in kind of the vicinity of the promised land. He goes to the the furthest place away from Ahab and Jezebel, Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the mountain where Moses would meet with God to come down, and he would come down just radiating God's glory, God's presence. This is where Elijah runs to. The mountain where that was just thick with the glory and presence of the Lord. That would there would be lightning and thunder enveloping this mountain. This was like a historic, iconic mountain. And this is where he's he runs to. He's seeking this mountaintop experience again. Like he had on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Like Moses had in the desert on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And again, so this kind of makes sense that this is where he would retreat to. But if you read closely, God didn't send him there. Now God, in his grace, does an incredible work no matter what we do, no matter what choices we make. But God didn't send him there. So he meets him in this place. He meets him in this place of depression and fear. And he doesn't punish him or even really chastise him. God knows the journey that Elijah has had. He knows intimately Elijah's struggles and his victories. And so he asks him this simple question, this profound question. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I don't know about you, but that question elicits a, a deeply emotional response in me. <laughs> because I, I, when I hear this, I kind of hear both this, this graciousness, but there's also this slight rebuke as well. There's also this kind of like, oh, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? What are you doing here? And I feel that question like in my soul. It's a call for Elijah to reassess his decisions, to reflect and consider, to confess his fears. And he kind of does that, but he doesn't do a very good job of it. He responds in this way. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. This is a fascinating response. Because he barely answers God's question. But it reveals so much of where his heart is at. Because some of what he's saying is true. Some of what he's saying is true. He has been zealous for God. He's been faithful while many have been faithless. Many in Israel have rejected God's covenants. The altars have been torn down. And there have been many prophets of the Lord that have been put to death. But he, then he says this, he says, I am the only one left. It's kind of like he's saying to the Lord, like, come on, God, I, I, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's faithful. And it's like, is that true? No. This is where deception can so easily mix truth with lies. Before his experience, if you go to the very beginning of chapter 18, he was speaking with another prophet of the Lord, the prophet Obadiah, who made it clear that there was 100 other prophets that were hidden away, tucked away, away from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, that he had kind of given them food and water and, and nourishment. And he said, they're, they're safe there in a cave. 
They're just waiting for things to subside a little bit. So we can validate that Elijah felt really alone. That in that moment, he felt like this was a a real, genuine feeling. That's a good principle, by the way, just in general for, for life. That even though what someone is feeling might not be intrinsically true, we can validate the emotions behind that feeling. It's really important. So I can validate that Elijah, Elijah feels alone. And physically, yes, he was alone. But even that was his own fault. If you go back to verse 3, I don't, I, I, you don't have to go back on the slides, but um, he left his servant behind. He's like, okay, I, I'm going to go do my thing now. You just stay here. And I don't know whether he did this out of protection for his servant or maybe it was because he wanted to go it alone and have this kind of, you know, um, man on the mountain experience with the Lord. We're not, we're not quite sure. It doesn't say whatever his intention was. It was not healthy for him. It was not good for him to be alone because it made him feel isolated. So in Elijah's response, we also get this kind of tone of entitlement. He's kind of saying, God, I've been faithful. God, I've paid my dues. I've done everything that you've told me to do. And this, this is how you repay me? I'm running for my life? God, this isn't fair. I'm sure we've never had similar thoughts. No? No one? So God calls Elijah out of the cave and he says, prepare for God's presence to pass by. And I have to imagine what Elijah was thinking about in that moment. That here he is on the mountain of God, the mountain where Moses was given the Ten Commandments, the mountain where Moses would come down literally radiating God's glory and presence, the mountain where God manifested himself in spectacular and wonderful ways. And on the heels of his victory over uh, prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, he is just ready for God to do something awesome and incredible. And then a mighty wind comes and... God wasn't in that. And then an earthquake and ah, oh, God wasn't in that either. And then a fire. And again, God was not in the fire. And then God shows up again and he says, what are you doing here? And again, Elijah responds the same way. And at this point, God just starts responding plainly. He just kind of says, okay, just listen. I'm just going to tell you what you need to do. (laughs) Go back. Go back where you came from. (laughs) You have a work to do there. So Elijah, just this is a little recap here. Elijah, this incredible prophet, he runs away out of fear. But God graciously nourishes him. God reaffirms his calling And he shows him the next steps of his journey. It's pretty cool. That God does this incredible thing where Elijah is like running from his calling, running from what he's supposed to be doing. And God shows up. God takes him in this broken place, in this broken state, and does an incredible thing, does a great work in his life. So what does God have for us in this story? What does God have for us in this story? Now, you may have picked up on some things along the way, but there are some really beautiful and profound things, I believe, for us to learn here. And these are going to go fairly quickly, but um, just three things. They're not simply practical principles, but they are timeless truths that we can extract from God's word for for our gain and for God's glory. First thing is this. 
Self-care is good leadership. We talk about being leaders. Self-care is good leadership. One of the things we notice about Elijah after this incredible victory is that he immediately goes on the run. This is what he feels he must do. He's afraid for his life. But in the wake of all of this activity, he gets so worn out that he becomes depressed and he becomes burnt out. I can say with confidence that I've been there and done that and it is not a pretty picture. In the winter of 2017 to 2018, I experienced what I would call a dark night of the soul. I had a semester at this point. I had a semester left of seminary. I was a full-time pastoring a church downtown Guelph here. I was not Sabbath keeping. I was constantly sick or on the verge of sickness. I was clinically depressed and eventually was forced to take a sabbatical. And I was overdue for that sabbatical, so it, I, it was coming. But if I didn't have that coming up, I would have been forced to take a mental health leave. And while I don't have time to get into the nuance of every little bit of that story, I know that my circumstance was an accumulation of months and months of not caring for myself. This does not, this does not just happen overnight. Elijah had been going hard. He had been just in this, the intensity of his ministry was eventually too much for him to physically bear. I thought I was being a good leader by taking above and beyond what I could handle. But evidently, it ended up being the exact opposite. I would try and tell myself just to kind of buck up and keep going. But that only worked for so long. That only works for so long until your body just decides, nope, not happening anymore. You're done. And I became effectively useless. Just ask my wife. I was. And it took months, it took months for me to recover from this. In fact, it wasn't until maybe about four or five, six months ago that I kind of said to, to Lindsay, my wife, I, I was like, I, mean, I actually feel like I'm just now starting to get to a place where I feel like my capacity's grown and I've, I've, I've tried to implement some better practices and rhythms into my life. And it's hard work, but I would just want to say really, really clearly and plainly this morning that self-care is not selfish. The classic image that I want you to think about this morning is when you go on an airplane and they talk about the oxygen masks. What do they say about the oxygen masks? Put it on first before you help others. Because if you can't breathe, what good are you going to be to someone else? And for me, I don't know how many of you do like the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram 9 and I am a severe recovering people pleaser addict. And so I, for years, had been putting people's oxygen masks on before myself. And it eventually eventually left me with no air in my lungs. Maybe some of you are like that. Maybe some of you are on the verge of that. Maybe some of you are wrestling deeply with depression or burnout without even knowing how to care for yourself. God sees you this morning. God loves you. God wants to take care of you. I just love the picture of that angel just like meeting him in that desert place and just caring for him physically. We don't believe in a disembodied spirituality where our spiritual lives are separate from our physical lives. It is all connected. And we see that in the life of Elijah. It's like this beautiful act where God just kind of says to us, Sometimes you just need to take a nap and a snack. Like, that's, that's like, that's like, that's really good for your soul sometimes. You know, like, I, I love, I love the honesty and like the lack of veneer of children. You know, when they don't get what they need, 
it very clearly manifests itself. If they need food or sleep, they usually just start being miserable. I can guarantee you, if my daughter is miserable, she needs food or sleep. Like, she's almost four, and it's still that simple. Like, it's like, she's miserable. Oh, she's tired. She's miserable. Oh, well, she probably needs some food. Like, this is, our bodies are not that complicated on that level. I actually don't think adults are that different. <laughs> now the trick is we are a little bit better at self-regulating, right? We're a little bit, we're a little bit better being like, ah, oh, I know I'm hungry. I can wait another two hours until whatever, you know, like we can rationalize, right? But eventually after weeks or months of not doing this, it catches up with you. And the way God has designed our bodies is such that they will eventually give out if we have not cared for ourselves. Elijah was a wonderful leader. He was a great leader. But in this instance, he was not looking after himself. He was so concerned with Israel plunging into idolatry and apostasy that he forgot to rest and to nourish himself. And, to li- and listen clearly to this. I want you to hear this very clearly. It hindered his walk with the Lord. It hindered his ability to hear from God. It wasn't until the angel fed him and he had some sleep that he was strengthened enough to the point where he's like, I don't want to die anymore. I feel like I can actually do the work that God has called me to do. So just think on that. Think on what that might mean for your life. Secondly, and really quickly, find God in the small things. Find God in the small things. Elijah, he ran to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, looking for signs and wonders from God. He had experienced them on Mount Carmel, and he was hoping for God to do it again on Horeb. But God shows up often in the way that we do not expect. A still small voice. We sometimes expect or we want God to show up in this massive way. You know, we had this wonderful service last week praying for healing and that was beautiful and wonderful. And sometimes God does that and it's good and great when God does that. But sometimes we show up, we ask God to show up and with healing and miracles and revival breaking out across our nation or the world. And sometimes God does that. But sometimes God also speaks with a simple, gentle whisper. And it's just our responsibility to listen. Will we be okay if God just does a small thing sometimes? Where might we be missing out on what God is doing if we're only looking for God in the obvious? Some questions to ask yourself this week. Things to consider. Lastly, God refines us. In the wilderness, God refines us in the wilderness. The wilderness is, is a, a theme throughout the scriptures that, that really, um, where people get drawn out and, and they are refined, where they are challenged, where Jesus was tempted, all this kind of stuff. One thing that's, again, noteworthy here is that Elijah was really here of his own volition, of his own choice. And I would want to say this morning that it doesn't matter whether you put yourself in the wilderness. So maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I did all of these really dumb things. And now I'm in this really awful wilderness season. I'm in this really terrible season. It doesn't matter whether that was you or whether because of circumstances that are completely and totally out of your control. It does not matter which one you can categorize yourself under. 
God sometimes does his best work in those places. With Elijah, we see God do a significant work, kind of some heart work, some surgery on his life. Even though he wasn't really operating in God's will, he ran into the desert out of fear. He abandoned his servant and he isolates himself. And still, God shows up in a profound way. God is a God that is far too big for our failures. Amen? God is at his best when we are at our worst. God takes these desert moments, these moments in the wilderness, and he refines our character in them. He refines our attitudes. He refines our hearts. So maybe you are in that season right now where you feel like I'm in the wilderness. I'm in the desert. I'm in a dry, barren place. Just know that God wants to speak to you in that place. Sometimes it's hard to see it in the moment, but more often than not, I hear from people, and I can attest to this as well, that once people have gotten over, gotten, gotten out of that desert place, when God has brought them through that place, they would often call it a significant blessing to their spiritual walk. And that doesn't mean that we like seek bad situations so that we can, you know, be, you know, be refined by God. Like I'm not saying go do something dumb so that God can draw you into a new season. But what I'm saying is that if that's where you're at, whether it's your own doing or someone else's doing, God can and will work and move there. And you will find yourself blessed by what God does for you and in you in that place. But I recognize this can be painful. It was painful for Elijah. It can be frustrating. It's frustrating. It was frustrating for me. It was frustrating for the, the people that were around me as well. It's difficult to be in that place. Yet even at Mount Horeb, when Elijah's wrestling with feelings of isolation and disappointment and bitterness, God displays this gentle grace. God knows that the wilderness is hard because he himself, through Jesus, endured the wilderness. God can handle our bitterness and our disappointments in that moment. God's shoulders are broad. He can carry us through that season if we allow him, by his spirit, to lead us. The story of Elijah, though, is incomplete without looking at Jesus. The fulfillment of all Elijah yearned for is found in Jesus. The, the one who spent a season in the wilderness, 40 days in fact, 40 days in the desert, and yet he was not, Jesus was not prone to fear or bitterness or sin. Elijah he was called back to his ministry to anoint his successor and to anoint a new king, but Jesus as he was emerging out of the desert, he didn't affirm someone else's calling as king, but he emerged knowing deep in his heart and soul that he was preparing to take his rightful place as king. To show us what God is truly like. To show us what the kingdom of God is like. To show us how to live to die for our sins, to be raised, to prove that death is not the end and to usher in this incredible kingdom that we now get to partake in and participate in.
kingdom of life, not a kingdom of dry deserts, but a kingdom of, of living water teeming with life. In Elijah's imperfections, we can learn very much. But through Jesus' perfection, we are healed and we are saved. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us? Would you teach us what we need to hear? And would we just take that with us this week as we go about our our, uh, regularly scheduled program, whatever that looks like for us, whatever season we are in? Whether we feel like we are in the middle of that desert place right now, whether we feel like we are uh, we are coming out of that, or whether that maybe we are in a in a place where we are heading into that, God, wherever you have us, God, would you speak to us? Would you nourish us so that we can hear from you? Would you allow us to not only learn from the story of Elijah, but to be uh, reminded that Elijah's story is incomplete without Jesus? We thank you that you lived a sinless life for us. That you died for us, that you saved us, and that you were raised again. God, I pray that we would take this to heart, that we would just breathe this uh, anew today. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.